Hey guys, it's Chris. Hope everyone is having a great Thanksgiving. I wanted to resurface this awesome interview I did with Keith Wasserman, founder of Gelt. Keith's an awesome friend of mine, building a multi-billion dollar company. Uh, He's a beast. And we have a great conversation, kind of how it all started. So thanks so much for continuing to join me. And again, have a great Thanksgiving. Today's episode of The Fort is brought to you by none other than Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas, with a track record of acquiring more than $587 million in assets throughout the great state of Texas. The team over at Ford is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial properties between 10 and $75 million throughout the major metro cities in Texas. In fact, Fort Capital was named the fastest growing real estate company in Texas by Inc. Magazine last year. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit fortcapitallp.com. So Keith, tell me about how Gelt got started and kind of the the quick or not even quick, but the the story of how Gelt started and uh, where you are today. Yeah, definitely. So first of all, thanks for having me on the show here, Chris. And you know, I've I've always been very entrepreneurial. Um, you know, I'll take you back to when I when I was ten years old. In the household, we weren't really talking about you know movies and sports, and you know, I would attend an occasional sporting event with my dad and stuff. But we we talked about business and entrepreneurial kind of activities, and my parents. You know, they brought me to Costco and we, we went to Costco and bought boxes of candy bars and then sold them one by one at the park, you know, so buying at retail and, and uh, wholesale and selling at retail. And then in uh, high school, um, one of my, my dad's uh, friends taught me how to negotiate. And it really stuck with me that you really make money on the buy. And, and we bought uh, a thousand leather jackets um, and I started selling them to all the students and the parents and the teachers. They, they were IRs, they regulars. They had little blemishes on them. And I, I made a ton of money in high school doing that. And, and that led to my next business, which was uh, an eBay operation. We, we bought and sold around 200,000 items on eBay from 2003 to 2007 while I was in college um, at USC, University of Southern California here in L.A. And I, I've never worked for anyone in my life. I, I'm sort of like a serial entrepreneur and I just wouldn't make a good employee. I literally, you know, my, my dad's like, you, want, you, you should learn real estate, come, come work for a friend of mine. So I, I, I was there. Nine o'clock, I left at noon at lunchtime. I just couldn't find myself working for anyone. And I, I have no problem, you know, fi- filing paperwork for myself, but I, I didn't really feel like that was the best use of my time doing it for others. So I wanted to really learn by doing. And I was always intrigued by real estate. Um, my, my dad's a pretty successful attorney here in LA, but I really believe he's made most of his money in real estate investment and development. So um, it, it's just really an amazing business that. You could do at any time in your life for your whole career. And we started very small. Um, my cousin, Damien Langeri, came to me with the opportunity to buy a four-unit building in the Central Valley of California in a city called Bakersfield, which most people in L.A. don't even know exists, actually. Even though it's the ninth largest city in California and like the 39th in the United States, it's around two hours north of L.A. And it's based on oil and agriculture, uh, a very industrious town, but it got, it, got, it got hit really hard during the recession, housing prices, and, you know, it was a boom and bust kind of situation that was overbuilt and then busted even before L.A. and other areas. So we got we got there really at the bottom of the bottom when there was Ariel's galore. Um, previously on the line, we were talking about, you know, how anyone could, could get a residential mortgage. And we bought 15 little fourplexes. They, they were selling for anywhere between one hundred dollars to $150,000 for the whole building. And they previously sold at the height of the market, maybe oh four, five, six, for around four to five hundred thousand. So, really, no brainer. You know, making money on the buy, which is a recurring theme. And we, you know, we we got some residential financing. We the, our mortgage payment was around six, seven hundred dollars, and each unit rented for around that price. So, if you had two units, you you were making money. Three or four, you were cash flowing like a pig. And you know, I cut my teeth driving up to Bakersfield every week with Damien. It was some of the happiest times of my career, learning the business. We didn't have anything. We were both living in my parents' house. I was 25, and he was 29 when we started this business uh, 10 years ago. So, you know, it's, it's been an exceptional ride, and we're, we're very fortunate. But we, we got our start really just by doing and learning and, you know, having good mentors around us and reading as much as we could, but literally just starting very small and, and, and doing, you know these activities. That's fascinating. And and to stay on that topic for a little bit. So you buy 15 duplexes in Bakersfield, which is a drive away. 
how did you get them? Did they require remodeling or did they require, or did y'all do it yourself or did you sub that out to people? Yeah. So <clears throat> Damien was the one that really, he, his father was in, in, in Bakersfield actually. And he pointed us to that town. He was investing in real estate and, and, and sort of got burned during the bu- bubble because he bought, you know, the high of the market, but he said, this is, this, you know, this is a great market. And he was very hands-on with the contractors new, you know, which contractors were reputable, uh, who to work with. So, and he really taught us, you know, how to negotiate, how to, how to bid out projects, um, what to look for when we were doing these remodels, all these buildings were pretty much boarded up, bank owned, uh, you know, left rotting. And we, we came in and, and, and spent a decent amount of money renovating, you know, they were, they were, they were in the rougher parts of town. So another recurring theme I've, ha- I've had is, don't over improve um, the buildings. We t- we make them very nice and clean. And but where we because at some point there's there's diminishing returns. If you put extra dollars in, you're not going to get it out. So we made we made these units you know livable, clean, nice. Didn't over improve, and we were able to rent them out you know relatively quickly because um, they they were nicer than the older buildings building stock in in those areas. Another important lesson I learned through this process is just because something's cheap doesn't mean it's it's a good deal. You know, all these initial fourplexes were in rougher parts of town, and we 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 didn't make as much money as we liked, but it set the building blocks for learning about where to buy, and we started buying in better locations in in Bakersfield, for example, but better areas, and we did much better on those assets, and, and that led us to, to new markets. Uh, we we moved into into uh, Phoenix, Arizona, right afterwards. This was 2010-11, and Phoenix was reeling through after the bust. Um, we bought. 2000 units there from 2010 to 2013 or 14. That was our biggest market. And we just kept moving into new markets, uh, you know, year after year and buying one property at a time, essentially. So, um, yeah, it was a big, just a big adjustment though, moving from a fourplex to a, a larger apartment community. I couldn't have done it with, with, I couldn't have done it with a lot of people ask how, how in the hell we did this. We, we built a track record. We had 15 of these little fourplexes with a few family friend investors that put up some money for us. And, we showed them that we could, you know, renovate and, and rent out and, and cash flow these assets. So we, we, I brought on two senior partners, we call them the gray hairs that could qualify for a larger loan and help bring in some new investors. So one of the gray hairs was my father that I actually brought in as a partner. And, and then another gray hair gentleman, Adrian, uh, who, who's, who we, who's no longer with us now, but was an instrumental partner in our beginning, helped us. And so we, uh, we bought a 78 unit building in December of 2009, a full year later. And that was our first foray into larger uh, multifamily assets. Wow. Is GELT uh, vertically integrated? Do y'all do management, construction, and everything? Or do you third-party out uh, some of the services? So <clears throat> that's a great question. Initially, we we didn't have any great luck with the property management companies in Bakersfield that were managing our fourplexes. So we actually created our own management company to service that. And then we started taking on other clients. It was pretty much a disaster. We're not built to be property in the property management business, especially remotely. Uh, maybe I, I have a different opinion if all my assets were in LA. But we right. even from the beginning days, we outsourced management on the larger assets. And, you know, we, we were so we eventually got out of the property management business. Now all of our apartments are managed by large reputable uh, third-party management companies that are in the in the different regions. They're the best ones in regions uh, that, that we're in. So we have three or four different management companies we work with, and um, we're very hands-on with those management companies, but it allows us to stay small and nimble. It sounds like we have about the same size organization. We have around 25 people in our, in our company. Uh, if we had to do our own property management, we would have over, over 200 uh, staff because all these sites have between five to 15 staff members between the the leasing office and in the field, the main, all the maintenance tests and stuff. And then we have have to have regional managers and, you know, constantly training, hiring, firing, you know, just, I didn't want to be in the people business. I wanted to be in the real estate investment business. So, you know, that's, that's, that's our motto. People have been successful either both ways. There's no right or wrong, but I think it's allowed us to scale quicker by not being bogged down in the day-to-day management. We came to the same realization. We started out early on our end doing property management and quickly did a head count of what we would need to hire to get into full property management and came to that same conclusion that we were better off being great asset yeah. managers uh, than property managers. So 
you talked about friends and family money. I, is it fair to say that uh, when somebody's raising friends and family money, that first investment in somebody is mainly more based on I'm going to invest in Keith and I know he's going to give it everything he has than you know, necessarily Keith knows everything about real estate and there's there's no doubt that he's going to hit a home run in real estate. Would you would you agree it's more of an investment in that person than, than the actual project itself 100%. early on? And, and, it, and even even in this day, we you know, we've raised over 350 million. To this day, I always tell our investors and potential investors, you're investing in us. You're investing in the jockey. You're investing in us because, you know, during good times, during tough times, you could you could uh, trust us. We're very open and transparent about how things are performing on the property. We have a great track record that, that that's also a plus, but you really are investing in us. And even more so in the in early days when you don't even have that track record yet. Um, we've only once lost money on a little fourplex. It was like $30,000. We, we took it out of our own pocket to, to pay our investor back so we could have a track record that says we've never lost any investor any money. So it's it's a people business, definitely. And you know we, we want to have a stellar reputation and keep that reputation for sure. I love it. You are highly focused in multifamily. You also own mobile home parks. Why multifamily and why mobile home parks? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So in the formation of Gallup 10 years ago when we started, we had to make a decision. Did we want to go in the single family residential or the multifamily? We were looking at tapes of these uh, single family homes that were located all over the country pretty much. And, and, and just in our heart, we thought that was going to be a very difficult business model to aggregate and manage all these assets located all over the place. We like the model where you have mass and, and one apartment community could have, I mean, some of our buildings are four or 500 units uh, in, uh, you know, uh, in, one air, in one building instead of going to 500 homes that are scattered miles apart, for example. So right. we, like, we like the business model much better on multifamily. You could finance it much better. The aggregators have done okay. Some have gone public and raised a lot of money. I, I don't think they've made tons of money on, on like operations. It's more just price appreciation. It was a one-time, you know, in our lifetime kind of thing to, to be able to buy all these REO homes. I'm in the business of long-term holding. I don't think these companies are going to be around long time holding these single-family homes. Um, you know, I think eventually they're going to dispose of them. I, 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 I'm all about preserving capital, growing it over time. And multifamily, we thought, is the best way to do it. We, we looked at office buildings, shopping centers, never loved the business model. Uh, we saw the way people were shopping was changing with the internet. We saw the way people were working was changing with uh, collaborative workspace. Um, and just we made the right decision back then to, to start a multifamily. We've had you know strong tailwinds, but I, I'm still very bullish on it for the long term. We, we see different kind of concepts that are popping up that, that we're going to start experimenting with on the development side, such as co-living. Um, micro units, et cetera, but it's still, you know, pe where people need to live a, a place with a roof over their head. You know, since the recession hit, you have 9 million new renter households that are formed and there just hasn't been enough housing, uh, multifamily housing built. So uh, you still have a supply demand imbalance. That's why you're seeing rents continue to grow. Also, I, we're big on workforce housing buildings built 70s, 80s, 90s that have lower rents than like newer buildings, uh, dramatically lower rents. So we'll come in We'll do interior renovations, exterior renovations, manage it better, lift the rents in the process and provide a better, you know, home for people to live. And, um, you know, it's a win-win scenario, whereas some of our peers are, are buying brand new buildings and we just can't get the same kind of yield. So we like workforce housing. Um, commercial, you have, you have issues with, you know, if you have a big tenant that leaves, you have vacancy for a long time. It could whack your cash flow. You have no cash flow or have to feed the property for a long time until that leases up. You have broker commissions that eat into the cash flow. You have tenant improvement dollars. So the cash flow is a lot lumpier and we're, we're dealing with individual investors and I want to be able to just have, you know, consistent income stream coming to them through, you know, be, always being around 95, 96% occupied on these buildings. Um, you know, maybe at the lowest 92, 93% at, at certain times, but it, it's always going to have pretty consistent cash flow. You know, it, as long as you don't over leverage, you're, you're going to be fine for the long run. I mean, some of our peers got hurt. You know, over over leveraging in markets like Phoenix, that rents dropped twenty percent from peak to trough. But if, if if you didn't over leverage and you were able to hold the buildings through the recession, those values are up dramatically more than they were, right. and the rents are dramatically higher. And that, that, that that's it. You just got to mitigate your risks and you know lower leverage. And you know we do long term fixed rate debt. We raise a lot of money up front, extra for uh, you know cushion for rainy day, and and 
real estate's not a get-rich-quick thing. It's just a way to build wealth over time, pay down that mortgage, and have rents increase over time, and you know the cost, replacement costs of things increase, and it's just a great way to to park money and and have uh, great. You know, and there's all these tax benefits also. So it's, it's just a great way to preserve and build wealth over time. I'd say. Would you? How do you think about uh, the future? Do you think uh, renting? is the future or ownership is the future, especially as, you know, millennials and the younger generation require more flexibility. They're, they're not getting married as quickly. They're not starting families as quickly. They're not having as many kids or having more pets. There's a, there's a debate out there that the, the future of the world is renting, not owning. Um, I fall on the, I fall in the future of being closer to renting. Uh, where do you stand on that? And I'd imagine, if it is renting, that bodes very well in the multifamily world. Yeah, I think there's always going to be a, a subset of people that want to own, but the rented, renter generation population is going to continue to boom with, with the millennials, like you said. And then the other end of the barbell, I think the boomers are also becoming more of a renter because, you know, they, they downsize from, from their home and, and you, you know, they're, they're, there's a lot of renters by choice, not just by necessity. Um, I, I believe, you know, I, I think home ownership went from around 69% to like 62%. It, it finally started stabilizing. It hasn't dropped anymore. Some, some countries like Germany or like cities like Berlin have a lot higher renters than home ownership. And then some areas like that we've been in, like China and Israel, it's all 100% pretty much home ownership. But they're, they're starting to see a lot more rentership and it's becoming more and more okay to rent rather than having to own. And I think we're going to continue to see that for sure uh, in the U.S. I, is it going to drop to a 50% level, you know, of home, homeowners versus renters for the whole country? Maybe not, but in, in certain markets, it already is. I mean, we're, we're, where it's just extremely, extremely expensive to, to buy homes. So I, I say, you know, I, th- I think the, the tailwinds are still at our back for, for renters and being able to be more mobile, uh, especially with work, um, new age of work. Yeah. You mentioned co-living, you mentioned micro units. There are, it seems like there's a new app every day that's an amenity for multifamily and, and the tenant experience. I've, I've said a lot that it's almost like a, in some way, there's a lot of experimenting going on with the way we think about living. What are some of the biggest kind of changes that you've seen since you started uh, buying larger complexes in 2010 to where we are today? Yeah, I, I agree with you there. There, every, you know, every week there's a new app that pops up, and it's it, it's it's a it's a nice thing to have, but not a real. I don't think it's really solving a, a serious need. And a lot of them have come and gone. We've invested in a lot of early stage tech startups and a good amount in the real estate space. Uh, we started our, our own financial technology company called Demuso, which handles all the rent payments on these large multifamily properties, where we saw a real a real pain point for for both the renter and and the owner. Um, what was the question again? I was got sidetracked with the uh Yeah. What what are just what are some of the biggest kind of changes that you've seen um in the way that people think about living? And then what does the next kind of five years look like with all this you, you mentioned co-living and micro units and on top of that all the apps, like it feels very experimental with how the living how people think about living uh today and, and where we're gonna be in a decade from now. Yeah, definitely. So <clears throat> I really think in certain markets, you're going to see more of that co-living expand where people could pay a, a lower price, you know, just to rent essentially the bedroom. Um, what is co-living? A lot of that, co-living is, is essentially like sort of like like a dorm essentially style living where you rent the bedroom. It could be furnished or unfurnished. You have maybe four or five, you know, rooms around a communal, communal kind of kitchen den area. Um, it could have a, a shared bathroom or I believe, you know, better scenario. Obviously everyone pretty much wants their own bathroom. Um, and right now lenders are sort of gun shy on lending on this kind of thing and, and lending because you can generate a lot more cash flow from, from renting on a square foot basis on these units, renting, uh, by the bedroom instead of the whole unit. I think in certain markets, it's going to be really popular. Um, we're, we're looking at doing it, doing it, but with less frills, a lot of these, Co-living buildings are, are amenity jam-packed and, you know, just very high rent still, even though you're getting a small space. We're, we're, our, my thought is just low amenity, but really high in design and, uh, you know, just keep keep the cost af- affordable. Right. You know, mi- micro units, the same thing. We, we have uh, friends that have been developing micro units locally here in Santa Monica. They've done very, very well. So certain areas, 
I think bodes well for that. We're, I didn't talk about it yet, but manufactured housing, I'm still extremely bullish on as an investment. Um, it, it's a scenario where the resident actually owns their own home. And as the, as the owner of the property, you just lease them the space, the, the lot. And we, we've bought around eight manufactured housing communities uh, in, over the last two years. They're really not building many new communities in the U.S. Uh, most cities don't want them. They don't create the same kind of tax revenue. A lot of the neighborhoods are against them. And it's just a great business that is really niche and under, I mean, there's literally around, I think, 12, 20 million uh, people that live in a manufactured house in, in the United States. And it, it's um, a great business. You can finance it with Fannie and Freddie debt, which we do on all our, you know, apartment buildings for the most part, generate a tremendous amount of cash flow. And two years ago, it was a lot easier to, to, to buy and make, make a lot of money on these things. But now you have a lot of institutional capital pouring in from the likes of like Carlisle, Brookfield, Colony Capital, et cetera. So it's getting tougher uh, as, as an apartment buying, finding good deals there. But still love the asset class because it is people where people live. Uh, the residents stay on average 10 years. Uh, so you have long, long tenancy. It costs a lot of money to disassemble and transport a home. So those homes pretty much stay there. And yeah, we, we buy pretty much three, three star um, communities and it's workforce housing. It's affordable, three to $500 lot rent. And, you know, where the apartment rents in those markets are at least a thousand, twelve hundred plus. So, you know, you're, you're less than half the cost of apartment living and you don't have to share a wall with someone. And, uh, some, we, we make these communities really nice, you know, really attractive landscaping and adding amenities and, it's been a it's been a good business for us too. So, as the owner, you're responsible for the common areas, the amenities, and then I'm assuming providing electricity and water to each lease space. Correct. Yeah. So it's 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 we're long term holders of real estate, and and this asset class is like the the least cost like for capex over time because you don't own the actual homes, you know. Whereas on our apartments, over the years, we're gonna have to replace roofs and asphalt and you know. Electric, electrical systems and, and boilers and chillers and all, all kinds of stuff where it's, this has much less capex requirements over time. So the, the negative is in a good market, you can't push rents as quickly as an as apartment would. But right. the flip side, I think, is, is during a down market, I don't think you're going to see this, the same kind of um, you know drop in rents. So. Are people signing uh, annual contracts or leases? Or are they signing you know multi-year, five-year, 10-year? Is it just year to year yeah it's pretty much year to year just just like um multifamily and you know we, we we we've seen rent growth not not as much as, as as in multifamily but my asset managers love dealing with with it because it's very little things going on in the property and um we try to buy communities that have little park-owned home inventory if we if we do inherit a community if we buy a community that has some park-owned homes we'll, we'll try to sell them off to start just getting that lot rent going and it's been a great business. That's great. Are there any other asset classes that y'all are focused on besides uh, multifamily and mobile home communities? Yeah, a, a third one that sort of fits our criteria is self-storage. Also, another one that's a very low capex required asset over over time. We like buying those in high barrier to entry markets. So we bought our first one a few months ago, actually, in Southern California here in South Pasadena. It makes a great redevelopment site as well. It, it, this site was on the light rail. Um, on a street that has tons of retail shopping, et cetera. And, you know, it was, it was built in the, I don't know, early nineties, a long time ago before the area has really changed a lot. And I think, uh, you know, the rents were extremely below market and it's, it's not, it's not going to require as much money to, to renovate as a, like an apartment community to get the rents up. And, and, and literally all the other source facilities in the area were all, you know, 98, 99% occupied. And uh, there's a, there was a moratorium actually in, in, in South Pasadena. So there's not going to be any new, competition even built. So, you know, that's another industry we really like. I'm, I'm, I'm cautious about technology impacting that one, though. You have a lot of tech startups in the space, but I, I think that's only going to serve niche customers. And I think self-storage long-term still going to be uh, a good asset class. So we're, we're, we're doing that. And then um, we, we bought an RV park as a, as a really um, interesting opportunity. It was a 66-site RV park in Monterey, California, right on the ocean. And it had extra land adjacent to it where we could build an extra 22 pad. So it had, um, I think they went through their entitlements and got their final permit, but they let it lapse because this, it, it, they did it right, I guess, during the, or right before the recession. So we're going through that process right now again. And 
it's going to be a huge value add once we get those sites going. And, and we've also added a lot of um, cool ways to make more money, uh, glamping tents for certain customers that don't want to just pull in with an RV. They want to fly up or drive up and stay in a, in a tent or, uh, uh, you know, with a bed and a, in a, you know, a heater, et cetera. Or whereas before people were pitching their own tents and they were charging $20 a night. Now we charge around $200 a night um, for this glamping tent, which is a, a great boost to the NOI for our, you know, for us and our investors. And then, uh, we have some small, tiny homes. We, we rent out nightly there and some um, some uh, Airstreams. And we, we've added a beer and wine license. And it, it's more like running a hotel. It, it's pretty in, in, pretty involved. but And it's sort of a passion project. But we saw a huge amount of upside. Right. And it was an irreplaceable location. So I think we'll, we'll look at more of those. RVing as a whole, is, is, as an industry, is really picking up. I think last year or the year before, has seen the most RV sales ever. They started really picking up. You have millennials now that are more... You, you know, tra- traveling the country and are more mobile and you have the boomers that are big, you know, population that, that likes doing this. Um, you know, being a city guy, I've, I've only done it once, but I had a lot of fun being in an RV driving up the coast of California. So definitely, uh, you know, good asset. RV, RV storage is another one that we're looking at because it, people, uh, you know, in, in cities don't really have places to, to put these RVs and they'll, they'll, they'll pay up for, for storage because these RVs could cost up to half a million dollars. I mean, it's, it's a, pretty amazing. It's expensive as homes in some areas. So, you know, it's a second home for people essentially. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on that too. And we're, we're entrepreneurial and opportunistic, but the, the bread and butter of what we do is still, you know, multifamily yep. um, value add for the most part. We, we do some development, but only locally in LA where we know the areas know all the local, you know, rules and, the, and just it's in our backyard easier to oversee. Yeah. No, so the the RV the RV model is a lot more uh, short term rentals, people coming in and out, as opposed to mobile home parks, which is a long term stay. Correct. Yeah, the mobile home park it's called mobile home, but it's really not mobile. It costs around I, I've heard seven to ten thousand dollars or more to disassemble and transport, you know, a manufactured home, and you know, you sometimes see them going down the highway. In sections, there you you have uh, like single wide, double wide, triple wide. So they, they they do them in sections, and yeah, it's 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 a costly thing to move. So they're very stationary, and if so, if a resident wants to leave, essentially they'll, they'll and they own their home, they'll just sell it to another person that will buy it, and then you know continue paying that lot rent. So it's um, definitely not mobile. <laughs> it's not a stationary. Yeah. yeah. I love how you think about, although you um, are investing in real estate, what you're also, a, a pattern that I'm hearing is you're paying very close attention to human behavior and what people are up to and helping that be your guiding light into what asset classes might be most profitable for you and, of course, your investors. Absolutely. Yeah, we're constantly, you know, seeing what the big trends are and, you know, looking looking for opportunity. I think <clears throat> someone asked, what would I be doing now if I was just starting the business in, in this market, I'd say I, I would I would take a close look at um, they call them cloud kitchens or ghost kitchens. Uh, you have Travis Tra- Tra- Travis Kalanick of Uber started, or actually he bought into this business and he's running it now called Cloud Kitchen, and they are essentially what they're doing is they're taking uh, in, in industrial buildings that are sort of infill, converting them into commercial kitchens, allowing restaurateurs to essentially open up an online only restaurant without having a physical real estate footprint. And so it keeps the, it keeps the cost down. It's turnkey. A restaurant's work. It could start with one concept, see how it does. If it doesn't do well, switch, switch, switch to another concept. So you have not just entrepreneurs and startups, but you also have established restaurants um, that, that take space in these, these cloud kitchens. And they literally, it doesn't bog down the back of the back of the house because you have so much more delivery because of Postmates and, you know, uh, DoorDash and Grubhub. And I think it's really, you know, why need that real estate on the, you know, very expensive real estate to rent out. If you're doing a lot of takeout business, maybe you could, you know, have a smaller footprint and have different locations making, preparing the food offsite and, and, and um, partnering with these or developing your own. I don't know exactly what they're doing, but essentially all these delivery services know where people are pinging from. So if they see a lot of people pinging from a certain part of LA, let's say, uh, for their restaurant, they don't have to be located there. They can just have a a kitchen there, cloud kitchen and make all the food and, and, and and deliver and and build a a big business. I think, I think you're going to see some, some monster companies that are built on top of these platforms 
that don't have any physical footprint. Like the next McDonald's could be built, you know, uh, with, with this kind of platform uh, in these commercial kitchens and and be 100% delivery only, or start delivery and then and then start having physical footprint too. Just like just like retailers, you have ones that started online, and you know it's becoming more and more expensive to advertise online with, with Google and Facebook and Instagram. And now they have they're opening physical stores. They're e-commerce first, but they they call it on the channel now, where they actually then open a physical footprint. So you have like I guess Bonobos and uh, Warby Parker started this way, and in the Santa, in the Santa Monica, not Santa Monica, in Century City here, the mall, the Westfield Mall that was re- recently renovated, you have a ton of these brands that were native online, and then they opened up a physical location after. So I think you're going you're to see more of that in um, in restaurants and, and and that trend with with these cloud or ghost kitchens. They're, they're doing it. They started in other countries, like in India years ago, and I think it just started catching on here. But it, it makes sense to reposition old, you know, outdated uh, space. That for this kind of need. That's fascinating. Travis, if you're listening to this, we have a lot of industrial and DFW. We'd love to be chatting. How do you think about going into a new market? What, what drives you there? And then once you have decided on a market, how do you kind of set up? How do you find your property manager? Who's going to do all your construction and renovations? Do you have to achieve a certain economy of scale to be profitable in a new market? How do you think about all that? We're sort of market driven first, so we'll study, you know, months or years on a market, really understand the local market, and then dive in big in that market. Any market we go into, we try to get at least a thousand, you know, units. So our first market was Bakersfield. We liked that one based on oil and agriculture, its proximity to LA, and uh, you know, prices were whacked really hard there. We got there first. It came out of the, the cycle really nicely. Oil was over 130 dollars a barrel at the time, and you know, it was it was doing really well. They added a ton of jobs, and then we moved into Phoenix. Because we studied that market and saw that it was, uh, you know, the I think eighth largest city in the United States. It's one of the top ten largest cities, maybe fifth actually. It's it's a huge city, and I've been growing up going to Phoenix. My grandparents lived there. Saw the market just boom, and they had a huge bust. And I knew in my heart it was not, it wasn't going to be down forever. They had the immigration bill passed that 100,000 people illegals left, and a lot of these communities were reeling because of the loss of people and, and jobs, but. Literally, it, it rebounded very nicely, even quicker than we thought. You know, we, we, we first do all our research remotely, then go on the ground and, and then understand the local market, study the local market, talk talk to all the local brokers, talk to local business owners, uh, economic development corporations, wherever we get a lot of data on it, and then introduce us, ourselves to all the, um, the the brokers that, that focus on these multifamily properties, 200 units and, and up, which is the ones we're, we're buying, and in and, 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 Small markets, you might have only three or four players that are selling these kind of assets. Uh, in larger markets, you could have 10, 20, 30, 40. I mean, it's, it's still limited. And, and 99% of the sales of larger assets go through brokers. So we just uh, literally build relationships with the brokers that we're trying to buy in those areas and become part, get on their distribution list. Uh, most, most deals are widely marketed. Some are marketed only to select few groups, which we hope and we are on most of these short lists from these brokers. And at the end of the day, what differentiates buyers, I believe, in my heart, is performance, being able to perform at the price you go into contract at without retrading, unless there's something really material that was not disclosed. Um, the broker wants to make sure that commission's in the bag. And uh, same as the seller, the seller wants to know that there's not going to be any retrade where they have to bring it to market. So literally having good relationships with the brokers and sellers is what allowed us to build this, this company. That's awesome. When when you get there, how do you trust who the contractor is going to be? That's one of the places where things can go really wrong and get out of budget. Subs are walking off the job. How do you get really comfortable with who's going to do that work for you? We always lean on the management companies we work with because they have pricing power and they, they know through experience because they've been working with these GCs for a long time. They know which ones are, 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 are reputable, which ones you know, don't overcharge. Which, so we always bid at least three times for, for large projects. We oversee all the major CapEx work, but we work hand in hand with, with um, GCs that have worked with the management companies. So you asked about management companies. So we, so we have one that's sort of our go-to. It's, it's called AMC and they're based in Salt Lake. But they have a big presence in markets that were in like Denver. So they manage around probably two thirds of our assets. If they're in a market, if they're in the a market that we're going to, um, we always, make sure that if they have a good regional presence there just because they're in a market. It, 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 it all boils down to the people. So it's like 
we like their company and their culture and what they, what they're all about. And they're very aggressive, for example, on other income, and they they run a pretty lean ship. But as long as they have a good regional presence there in those markets, we'll go with them. If they're not located there or they don't have a strong regional presence, we'll go with um, the two or three other ones that we use. We always vet the management companies, talk to you know other clients of theirs, and it's a small industry. Like all the large multifamily owners know each other um, for the most part. We all go to the same industry events, and that's another thing I always try to be a friendly competitor with people um, because we're always buying and selling from each other. So like, for example, eight of our last nine deals have we bought from one large fund that sells 40 plus deals a year and buys 40 plus deals a year. So um, I'd say just, that's all relationship driven. And, um, you know, we lean on our relationships with our management companies, just like we do on our, with our broker. So have you, you found a lot of success in building relationships and finding opportunities going to some of these bigger multifamily conferences? Yeah, I, I I view it. I read a lot, so everything that they talk about, pretty much uh, on the panels, I, I I read and know the people and stuff. So I, I focus when when I go to any industry event, just actually networking and talking to to, to people that you know we have we have relationships with or potentially new 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 relationships. Uh, so getting in front of brokers and sellers, um, and and industry events are good for that because they come from all around the country to those industry events. Uh, for apartment business, you have NMHC is the main one. Uh, I go to NAA and uh, RealShare. Um, so there's three or four that I go to every year uh, for the apartment industry. And it, it, it's, you know, I read all the industry news. I, um, I'm i part of, uh, you know, YPO. I'm, I'm part of the like multifamily division there. We, we always meet once a year. We have a big symposium. So I, I'd say uh, friendly competition and we share best practices with other uh, multifamily owners. Will you be at the YPO Global Real Estate deal in LA this year? I will. It's in my, it's in my, in my backyard. Are, are you part of YPO too? I am. I'll be there. I literally signed up last week. I'm excited. Excellent. I'll see you in person. Did you go last year in Montreal by any chance? I didn't go last year. This will be my first year. We have a we have a Texas council that we do quarterly uh, with all the CEOs around Texas, which has been amazing. But this will be my first global. Got it. That's, that's where I met Adam Blake from uh, from YPO. So uh, just joined a year ago myself, and it's been a, a great experience. You know, so I, I've done the multifamily uh, symposium and and the global uh, real estate, which which was really um, cool to meet other other like minded. You know, real, relatively younger. I think to be part of YPO, you got to be under 45 to join and then you age out at 50. It's a great organization. Anyone listening, you know, if, if, if you qualify, there's cert- certain qualifications in terms of number of employees or revenue or assets uh, size. You can go on their website. If you qualify, I'd say definitely look into YPO. It's a great organization. You, you know, I've made a lot of new friends that way and, and, and learned a lot in the process. It's incredible. It's been one of the most life-changing things that I've been a part of. And I don't say that lightly. You mentioned having 600 investors. Do y'all raise money from, I'm assuming, a lot of individuals, but do you also have kind of go-to groups that write much larger checks than maybe an individual would? Or how have you gotten to 600 investors? Yeah, so we got to 600 investors literally one at a time. We started with one investor who was, the first investor was a, a, a gentleman who worked for my dad. 10 years ago, maybe. And this was 10 years ago. So a long time ago, he used to work. He was an attorney at my dad's law firm and moved to Israel and was catching up with my dad and telling him he was interested in real estate and investing in America. And literally, you know, my dad was telling him about what we were doing. And that was our first investor. And then the second investor was a family friend um, who invested with us that has known, you know, my family a long time. And then I started having my own personal friends come in. And then the family friends started telling other friends, and then my dad started having, having some clients come in, and we've built this one investor at a time, one property at a time, and we have a minimum investment of 100000 per deal, that which is stated in the offering memorandum. However, if someone wants to start with $50,000 um, just to get more comfortable with us, you know that that's fine as well. Like the current deal we're buying right now, we're closing on in a month from now, the $62 million purchase. We're raising around $25.5 million. We have around a hundred and 50 investors in that deal. So, wow. um, I mean, if you do the math, we, we have a ton of $100,000 investors, which is the most common check size, but we have some larger ones that skew it like up to a million dollars. And, and then some 50s, even 25, if someone's younger, up and coming, really hungry that I like, uh, you know, I, the earlier you can start investing, the better, as long as you don't need, need these monies. These are illiquid kind of investments which I actually like. I like that you, you 
can't click a button and, and sell it in a panic. Um, right. Where I've done that in the stock market, and I wish I didn't. Like you know, I had I had Netflix that you know, all my bar mitzvah money was in Netflix, and that would have gone up a hundredfold if I didn't sell it when it only went up two times, went because it dropped and I got scared or something. You know, so I like the illiquid nature of it actually, and it's it's actually really good for a lot of our investors. We have a lot of investors now that are in um, uh, professional athletes, for example. One one of my um, newest team members was a former uh, professional athlete for the um, New York Mets. And he, he has a lot of, uh, you know, teammates and friends that are investing with us. And it's good because they have short careers. And this this is something that, that will grow over time. And once they retire, you know, the, the cash flow from these assets hopefully will be enough to, you know, be able to live off of them and, and, not, have a, and not have to dip into the principal. So we have people from all walks of life, young, old, business people, professionals, retired people, people inherited money, whatever. As long as someone's accredited, uh, we could work with them. And that's that's the business model we have. It's a syndication business model. But there's so many ways to do real estate. You could do it with your own personal money and it, it'll grow slower, but you, you start smaller and, and keep refinancing or selling and, and, and doing it, you know, one by building by building. And I know a lot of successful people have done that. I know successful people that have done institutional JVs, you know, they partner with uh, larger, larger funds and, you know, it, it's a lot more costly that capital, but that's the way they've built their business. And, they've been successful doing that. You, you have people that have done a fund structure where they go out and raise funds, you know, starting small funds and then over time getting to larger and larger funds as they develop. And there's no right or wrong. It's just, I think what, what's the DNA of your company? What, what's your long-term goals? And I, I think syndication aligns best with us because we like having personal relationships with our investors. I like making our, you know, family and friends and friends of friends money. And um, I like holding these assets long term, whereas a lot of funds and JVs, they have a three to five year kind of uh, horizon. Um, we're long term, you know, visioned owners. That, that's the way to make money, in my opinion, in real estate, just buy and hold and take good care of the assets and let time do, do its work. Uh, one of my mentors said time and inflation are real estate's best friends. And I really, truly, believe, truly believe that anything we've sold, you know, I sort of regret because it's resold at a higher price. But we needed to sell to create a track record, but nowadays we're, we're selling occasionally only, and, and we're pretty much doing uh, supplemental financing or refinancing to to get some some equity back, you know. But long term long term goal is to build a just as large of a portfolio as possible, and you know do do good for our stakeholders, our investors, and and our, and our renters, you know, providing good, safe, affordable housing for them, making you know good consistent cash flow. And you know, upside for investors. And if we do well for all that, you know, we're going to do well too. Yeah. So, so uh, these deals happen pretty quick. They happen in sixty days. You've recently raised this twenty-five million dollars for this latest purchase. What's your process for raising? Do you use software to help get the deal out? And uh, we use a platform called Juniper Square for all of our fundraising and investor management. But how do how do you do it? Yeah, so I actually used their competitor, IMS. We were pitched Juniper and IMS. We chose IMS for different reasons. I wasn't too involved in the decision-picking process. I'm sure both of them are great. And once you once you have a lot of investors, some kind of you know software tool is good for that. So we, we always d- d- disseminate the offering memorandums and stuff on, on that. So literally, the process goes like this. We, 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 we look at a ton of deals. If we like a deal, we'll bid on it. If we bid on it, we get into the best and final. Usually, we, we really try to win it. If we if we do win the deal, then all the you know everything starts. We have um, you know we're negotiating a purchase sale agreement simultaneously. We're doing all of you know start. Sometimes we start with an access agreement even before a purchase and sale agreement signed. But we start doing all our physical due diligence, walking all the units, inspecting all the major systems, doing a lease file audit, um, just making sure what was presented is what was you know what's advertised is what is there. Simultaneously, we're lining up all the financing. We, we put together the offering memorandum. We send it out to our list of our 600 current investors. I got another, give or take, I don't know, 1,500 that are like potential investors, people that have, you know, told me they're interested and just haven't pulled the trigger yet. You know, everyone I meet pretty much, I, t- I talk to them about what I do and, you know, I'm passionate about what I do. And I think more people that, um, you know, have, have, have a little money in savings should, should park it in real estate. I think it's good for, 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 for most people's portfolio. And so, you know, then we're, we're, we put out a, di- a due date where all the funds are due. It, I call it like hurting cats. So sometimes we have people that come in early. Some people come in a little later. So we always have uh, our own lines of credit and cash to close a deal in case, you know, it takes a little extra time. And, you know, right. some, some cases we, we've oversubscribed deals and we've had to give back money. Sometimes we just shut the deal off once we hit the dollar amount and, and just tell people, sorry, it's too late. It's sort of on a case by case basis, but 
Um, it does happen quick, like you said. Usually it's around 60 days uh, from start to finish. Because we, we usually try to get 30 days DD due diligence and uh, 30 days thereafter to close. Sometimes we got to do it a little quicker. Yeah, definitely, you know, it, it's nerve-wracking raising a lot of money really quickly. But we have the track record and we have a huge investor base. We don't have to rely. I, I'd be more scared if we if you have to rely on one partner that could say yes or no. And if they say no, you have to back out. So I like right. I, any deal that we go under contract on, we're too small not, not to close on it. So we we clo- we closed every deal that we've gone under contract on, except one where they had a material uh, retaining wall uh, that was that had a huge issue with it. It was going to be a million dollars to fix. The deal was a small, relatively small deal, maybe 10 to 15 million. So uh, we tried to either get it fixed or get a credit. The seller didn't want to budge, so we had a walk. But other than that, um, we, you know, we've, we've closed all the other deals we've gone into. So you started out, you were, you were doing it all. You were finding the deal, buying the deal, helping rehab the deal, manage the deal. And um, your, your company's grown. You're now across the country. I have to imagine your job has changed quite a bit. W- what do you, what does your job entail today? Yeah, my role totally changed. I mean, yeah, Damien and I used to do everything. We sort of, you know, I, I, I sort of, he, he focused on the rehabs and dealing with the contractors. I focused on the new acquisitions and raising the money. And, I, and we sort of shared the asset management part of the job. And then we hired an, uh, another younger gentleman who helped us for, we, we couldn't afford to pay anything. So we gave him, you know, like, I don't even know, $500 a month, but made him a third partner at the time. And then we just, every, we always found, we always sort of added people as we needed. And we're up to like 25 people. And we have the different departments. We have asset management. That's one department. So we have a head of asset management with asset management, asset managers under them. We have, acquisitions department with a head of acquisitions with acquisitions, you know, people under them. We have a COO, we have an accounting department um, with five people in it. Um, we have our in-house legal, probably forgetting some, we, we got our own construction management uh, individual. Uh, we have uh, pe- people that oversee our, two people that oversee our ground up development, another gentleman that oversees the manufactured housing communities. Um, we didn't really talk about it, but we have one gentleman that oversees the venture fund venture fund, the, the early stage tech startups we invest in. So I'm a big, belie- I'm a big believer in uh, bringing people in. I, I always, every day I have people that want to work for us and just reach out to me, which is an amazing pre- position to be in. I think it's because they just word of mouth people tell people how, how we're doing very well and doing well for the investors. And it's a great culture and great organization. And I, I get to cherry pick who I want working for me. So we've hired a lot of people over the years that didn't really fit in a particular box. They just, exhibited, you know, criteria that that I thought would be a good cultural fit. And we sort of made a position for them. If they started in one position and it wasn't working that well, we we, we, we veered them into a different direction um, where they'd be a better fit and just really play to people's strengths, essentially. So um, we've had very little turnover in terms of staffing. Everyone that's left has been sort of left. They, I mean, like, wasn't we, we wasn't a great fit to begin with. So all the core team members are still here and we, we incentivize everyone in the office to, you know, stay and build for the long term. Um, we've historically started pay a little bit on the lesser side on the salary, but over time really grown it a lot quicker in any or where you would make in any other organization. And also given um, pieces of all the um, cash cash flow and the, the back end to promote to, to, you know, all the staff members and really trying to align ourselves with them and have them, you know, be happy in, in this work environment and stay long-term. And I think they like being here, you know, as part of our DNA to be entrepreneurial and every day is something different. And, you know, definitely nowadays I'm just marketing investor relations, like ra- raising money, um, more big vision, where are we going with this company, new hires. And to be honest, and I tell people, I, I haven't gone to a lot of our recent acquisitions because I trust my teams that much on the acquisition front. They've gone to hundreds and hundreds of buildings. They know what we want to buy. You know, they know, they, they know how to analyze the deal better than I can nowadays. So I tell people, which is true. I don't even know how to use Microsoft Excel. I don't, I don't know how to use, uh, you know, <laughs> so like I literally, you know, am, am really focused on those things that those activities, marketing, raising money, um, direction of company, strategic, you know, strategy and making sure everyone works well together. Um, we've had, we just started doing some like business coaching for the executives here. And, you know, that's been great. So it's really, Scaling this business and um, growing the team has been integral over the last few years. That's fascinating. I literally, and I'm not kidding you, I told 
I was with our analyst yesterday and a few other folks, and I said, guess who is the worst person on Excel in this entire company? Me. <laughs> I am. Yeah. My, my original Excel model was a little one pager, and um, I know how to read yeah. them. I know what they mean, but I cannot build them. I am awful on Excel. Yeah, I mean, I literally could just put numbers in fields. I don't know anything else. But <laughs> even for the begin, even for the beginning, I didn't joke. I mean, I could have learned it myself and and done it, which some people do. But the, the that actual third person we brought in was our analyst, and you know, from, from we 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 sort of hired to where our weaknesses were, and, and really focused on what we were good at. And I think that's important for any you know people in their in their careers. Where uh, and this is a a question I get asked a lot, and I'm sure you do as well. And I never have a a great answer because. It to me, it just feels like it will never end. There's always something else. But where is your company going to be in ten years, or wh what's the end point, or does it survive you, or you know, wh what does the end look like? Yeah. So, so the end is my life is over, and my, hopefully, God willing, one of my one of my kids will be in the business. Um, if not, one of my kids will have good leadership in place that that takes it to to, to the next level. So, you know, I think um, it's not. You know, I'm never going to liquidate these buildings. Um, you know, occasionally we'll sell a building here and there to create some liquidity and, you know, put some money into our, our pocket and our investors pockets. But yeah, I'd say, you know, we're, we're, we currently own around uh, 5,000 apartment units and I'd say I'd love to own, you know, a nice round number of 10,000, but in all reality, there's the sky's the limit as long as we're doing a good job. And, you know, I think, um, you know, the, the sky's the limit, but definitely, it's just a nice round number. And then and eventually, you know, breaking into the top 50, you know, owners of, in the U.S., you got to have it around 20,000 units. But there's not there's only maybe one or two other syndication companies that are on that list. They're, they're, they're mainly uh, like publicly traded kind of companies or fun, large funds um, that deal with institutional kind of investors. And I'd say just staying with our DNA and how we're building this business. And um, I'd say, you know, trying to own I, we always try to invest as much money as we can in, in our own deals. And I, I'd like to just becoming a bigger and bigger portion of the capital raises over time as uh, we, we grow this thing. Um, the investors always, always, that's the first question. How much money are you putting into the deals? And, you know, the truth is I, I put as much as I can in, into the deals, but, um, and, and which is scaled. You know, I started very small and now <clears throat> it's getting bigger and bigger. But um, I'd say real estate's expensive. Yeah, real estate's expensive. It, it, it you know, costs a lot to run, run, run the business here. But the beauty is I'm not under the gun to buy buildings, whereas our the people that raise the fund, they have a finite time frame where they have to deploy the capital. So they'll, they'll start overpaying for things. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's very important to be patient, I think, especially as the prices have gone up over the last, you know, call it seven, eight years. We've been more picky and more patient. And one of my mentors always taught us it's better to re better to regret not buying a property than to regret buying a property and having issues down the road. So, um, definitely, you know, try, try to heed, heed that, that warning. Do you think growth will come through a property by property acquisition, or do you think you'll eventually start buying out maybe companies or entire portfolios growing that way? Yeah. Portfolios. We, we bought a bunch of two property portfolios. Yeah. I, I guess once we're large enough and as long as, you know, some, some, some points of the cycle, like right now, I think people are paying up for portfolios. A lot of these large companies need to deploy capital. So they're, the larger the portfolio, they'll, they'll pay a premium. Whereas sometimes in the market, if someone needs to dispose of a lot of assets and it's a just depressed situation, you could buy it and at a discount, you know, then buying them one by one. So, um, you know, we're, we're sort of constrained. We can only maybe raise up to, I don't know, call it 35 million on any one particular deal. You know, we, we only try to do one deal at a time. So eventually it would be great to just be able to do, larger portfolio buys or multiple deals at the same time, but it, it's literally very hard to find deals now anyway. So it's, it's not like if we, if we uh, found more deals, I think the money still would come. It's just very hard to find good opportunities right now at this point of the cycle, but they are, they are out there still. Yep. Now that it is, it has gotten a lot tougher. I got a couple more questions for you. This has been fascinating. First is what does GELT stand for? G-E-L-T Inc. is Keith's company. And what does that stand for? Yeah, so literally the word Gelt means money in Yiddish. And, you know, I, I grew up, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors, and I wanted a, a, a cool, short Yiddish word that was part of our DNA. And, you know, not just money, but it means like during Hanukkah time, we give these chocolate candies, you know, Hanukkah Gelt. And it's, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a cute kind of thing. And, and I, it, it involves like giving back. And, you know, we're very charitable and all the different, um, 
you know, communities we invest in, but not just that. We, we literally just started our, our, a 501c3 called Resident Relief Foundation. It's a public nonprofit that we're covering 100% of the overhead for. So all the monies that come in go out to, to renters that are at, um, in need of, of funds because of a financial crisis. So some of the people have had job losses is the most common. Other people, you know, had medical bills, car accidents, different things that they, they would have been on the street or evicted. And we, we literally had a lot of industry support and have helped uh, 50 individuals and families last year, hopefully double that to 100 this year. So really give back to the apartment community because without renters, we wouldn't have a business. So, you know, rent apartment owners are starting to be seen as sort of greedy, money hungry kind of, you know, companies and stuff. And, you know, with, with, we had Prop 10 that almost passed here, um, you know, that uh, was going to do more. And some states, they have blanketed rent controls now, like, you know. So I, I'd say there's a lot of pushback and we want to try to show that, have a good PR campaign for our industry, but also to really help you know, people that need the help, uh, responsible renters that have never, not never, but I think we have a criteria, nine months of paying rent on time, not no late fees and stuff. And, you know, we, we, we help. It's a win, win, win. The, the, the apartment owner gets to keep a good tenant in there. They don't have to have any eviction costs, down, downtime costs, rehab costs for the, for the unit. And it's a win for society because that person, a lot of these people would have maybe been on the street. We have a lot of veterans we've helped, um, people That's that incredible. Yeah, and, and we actually we our first few people we helped were in uh, your state of Texas when you had your Hurricane Harvey go through. A few residents um, contacted us via their management companies. We always give the money to the management company, so the resident can't right. use, can't use it to buy you know big screen TV or whatever. So it has to be right. used for the payment of rent. And a few uh, single fathers that worked, worked multiple jobs, they had their places of employment you know were were damaged and were closed for a few, you know. A few months, but the, they're they're home. They still had to pay their rent for their apartment community, right? So they didn't even understand about eviction and what happens to your record and how hard it is to find another home once you have that on on your record. So we literally helped um, keep those those individuals and, and they had kids in in their homes. And um, the average, our average grant's only been one point six months worth, I think, of rent. Um, originally, I thought we were going to have to give up to six months of rent for people, but people are pretty resilient. They just need that that hand up instead of a handout. You know, just to you know, give them a little breathing room. Uh, we were talking offline a little bit about a company we, we support called Lambda School, which uh, yesterday they just announced that they are going to be paying a living stipend of $2,000 per student uh, for their nine-month program. It's a computer science program for uh, programming and iOS development and coding and stuff beyond my pay grade. I couldn't, I don't think I could do, but they literally, um, they have over a, th- a thousand concurrent students right now. They just started a year and a half ago. They're, they're paying the students to go right now, and they make money on an income share agreement. Once you have a job that pays over fifty thousand dollars a year, they they split in, in in the in the in the income for like up to two years, and it caps out at a certain dollar amount. And literally, they are now paying you know the students. So it, it's leveling the pay playing field. You have you have you're gonna have students from all walks of life. Uh, most of their students are not you know college age. They're actually people that are changing careers. They're stuck in debted jobs. They're tired of working for minimum wage and you know, they, they do this program. They're, they're smart enough to learn how to code and whatnot and, and change careers. And they, they start earning the average salary is close to six figures. It's pretty crazy. I mean, they, the, they're taking people from, you know, $15 an hour to $75 to $150,000 annual pay. And it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And, um, you know, that's a company that we invested in early on in uh, the education space. And it's just, um, I don't know. I just love the company. It's, it's doing well financially, but also helping tons of people. And it's just going to continue to grow. Uh, you know, globally, I think. So. I, I've been fascinated by it. And so, and to confirm, if you are uh, looking for a job and computer science is in need of many new people, you can go to Lambda School for free and they will pay you a stipend. And then once you have graduated and you get a job, then you pay them back. So the traditional university where a lot of students are going into a lot of debt with no guarantee of a job or a future that could even pay off that student debt. It's the flip with Lambda. They're on, they're they're holding themselves accountable, saying if we can't make you successful, you don't pay us. And by the way, we'll even pay you to come to our school. That is that is not only going to be a fascinating thing for consumers, any university that's not keeping an eye on this model better start looking quick because I have a feeling it's about to flip uh, how we've thought about going to school forever. Exactly. I mean, look, I, I think a four-year 
degree, you know, it's going to have its place still, but I don't think every, it's a fit all. I don't think every single person needs to go to college and like, you know, a lot, a lot of people, they're better off going to a trade school. It's essentially, Lambda is like a modern day trade school that's training for new age jobs. And I think like I, I had the luxury, my parents paid for the school. I got some scholarships. So I, I graduated without the debt. But if, if I was to you know go to USC again and have to pay out of pocket or get student loans, it would have costed $200,000. And, you know, it, it was a great experience for me, I'd say, because I met a lot of friends and connections when, you know, supported the football team, whatever. But like, you know, I think I think it's not for everyone. I, I think, um, you know, a lot of people, they're better off going the route of, you know, doing some kind of trade school, learning a trade, you know, getting an internship, starting to work a little earlier. I, I was working all through college. I, I was telling you offline, we, uh, I started a, a Keith Bargain Center. We sold around 200,000 items on eBay during my years of college. So I, I, was, I was always working at the same time as college, but four-year college is not, not for, it's not a fit-all for everyone, for sure. No. And it's, it's, I think people would be surprised to hear this. When I look at resumes, I very, very rarely ever even look not only where they went to school, if they went to school, it, it just in today's world, you can learn online so much, you can read so much and be even more educated than people went to school. And so it's not a criteria for uh, working at Fort Capital. And I imagine you share a similar philosophy. I'm 100 percent same way. I, I could care less where they go to school. I, I'm, I'm more I would be more you know, excited if they didn't go to school, but they learned on their own and took the initiative and you know, excelled through, you know, like, like Austin, for example, at Lambda school, he, he dropped out of school. He lived in his car for four months. He's a very resourceful guy, you know, was, was homeless for a period of time. You know, we're looking at another company, same kind of founder hungry where they weren't just given everything. And I think, um, look, if, if you have the opportunity to attend some of these elite universities, I think the social capital is the best thing and, and, and signaling, like you said, from some people, employers, but for like guys like you and me that are more entrepreneurial and we understand you know, ha- having a, you know, a, a, an Ivy League on the, on the thing, it's it, it just, it just means A, they, it could be a, they could have been a great student or B with, with this whole bribing scandal thing that just happened. You could see maybe, maybe, uh, yeah. you know, Papa had dough and, and, and bought their way into the college. <laughs> so it, 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 it's pretty crazy, um, you know, the world we are, yep. but definitely I, I share the same view as you. It's changing quickly. Well, I'll wrap up with one more question, and I think you've answered it in different ways throughout this this great conversation. But for anybody listening that's on the on the fence about starting a company or wanting to move up in the company that they're at, or anything that um, you know they're taking some risk, what what would you tell them uh, have been some of the critical keys to your success and things that anybody could do that don't need money to do them? Yeah, so I'd say start small. You, if you start small, your mistakes will be small, right? So the first building we bought literally didn't have any money, didn't want to go to my dad for money. So we got an FHA loan, you know, only two or two and a half percent down. We borrowed that money. So we borrowed $5,000 from a friend. We got a cash advance of $10,000 on a credit card to do the rehab. And that's how we bought the little first fourplex. And I say, be as an entrepreneur, you got to figure out how to be resourceful. Uh, every business, you know, that starts pretty much starts small and, you learn from your mistakes. My path happened to be, I've never worked for anyone. I started my own company. A lot of people's paths, they, they started, you know, at smaller or bigger companies, learn as much as they can. You know, that's, that's the best education. You know, instead of going to college and, and paying, you could get paid and, and work for someone else and learn what to do and what not to do. And um, I'd say align yourself with good mentors early on. There's, there's a ton of people that want to give back if they see someone that's young and hungry and that wants to put in the work. So I'd say have good mentors. Uh, be resourceful, you know, find something that you love and you're passionate about is also great. I, I fell into real estate. I'm lucky. If I wasn't doing real estate, I'd probably be doing some other kind of business where, you know, I, I really love doing it. I, I wasn't like in love with, the, you know, buying and selling general merchandise. And, you know, I just sort of fizzled out of that thing. I sold all my 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 remaining items and I uh, looked for a new career path. So find something you're passionate about. And internships are a great way to do that. You know, when you're younger and stuff or, you know, just, um, yeah, that's sort of my advice. Yeah. When you're young, take risk. You don't, uh, you don't have family and overhead and, and, exactly. and much more risk of downside when you're young, it's all upside. Yep. hundred percent. 
All right, Keith, it's been great chatting with you. Uh, I really look forward to getting to know you better in the years to come, and especially out in L.A. uh, in a few months at the YPO um, Global Conference. Yeah, looking forward to meeting you in person. And um, definitely uh, thanks for having me on the show. If any of the listeners want to connect with me, just email me, Keith at GeltInc.com. You could also follow me on Twitter at Keith underscore Wasserman. I'm big on social media, so uh, even Facebook or Instagram, you could find me as well. Instagram, Instagram's uh, KF Wasserman, I believe. But um, definitely uh, reach out if, if you guys have any questions. And uh, thanks for having me on, on the show, Chris. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.